0: Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. As adults grow older, love and romance may have been lost due to death or divorce or may never have been a part of their lives. Older adults who are ready to find love again are usually more emotionally mature and focused on the present. However, they may need advice about how to overcome their pasts to form healthy, and nurturing partnerships. My guest today is Francine Russo, journalist and author of Love After 50, how to find it, enjoy it and keep it. She will talk about issues that may prevent older adults from looking for love and why it may be necessary to address them before finding that new special person. She'll also discuss dating for older adults and what issues to consider once a new relationship is found. So
1: welcome, Francine, and thank
0: you for joining me today.
1: It's a pleasure to be with you, Cheryl. All right.
0: Well, Francine, I mentioned in the intro about older adults being more emotionally stable than younger adults when looking for love. So talk more about that. If so, in what ways? And what are the characteristics they're more likely to have?
1: Well, I would say just think about your own life. For example, when you were a teenager, every emotion was gigantic and the end of the world. And probably in your 20s, every heartbreak was the end of the world. And then in in your 20s, in your 30s, you're striving for career. There's so many things you want. And in your 40s, you may be parenting and working and your life is just filled with stuff. But as you get older, I mean, at my age now, I am in my 70s, but even as early as in my 60s and my late 50s, I had every emotion was not catastrophic or the big deal. I didn't have big aspirations for the end of my life, I'd be, you know, for the rest of my life, because I was living in the present. I had been widowed more than once, unfortunately, and I had a sense of perspective. I'd lost some friends. Emotions were different. They weren't all or nothing. When I thought of certain people and pleasures, sometimes they were a bit bittersweet. Emotions were more complicated. I understood I'd had many experiences, and I understood my own behavior in the past. Uh Uh-oh, I've done this before. Let me stop that. And I understood when I saw somebody who was exhibiting a certain kind of behavior that really wasn't for me. So, you know, all of that, that kind of emotional stability and perspective and experience, all of that makes us really good bets to form a good relationship when we're older, even if some of the ones in the past were not good. So if you're going to begin the search
0: for that certain someone, are there personal questions that an older adult should ask himself or herself uh, before beginning to take that journey?
1: Well, yes. Chapter one of Love After 50 is called Do the Headwork. And by that, I mean, make yourself emotionally ready. And what do I mean by that? I think of a woman in my book group who had been left in a very nasty way by her boyfriend. And she said, I know I'm not ready to date because right now the headline for my dating profile is don't F with me. So if you're angry, if you walk down the street having arguments with your ex, you're not ready you have to get to a place where your headspace is free. Also, if you're desperately grieving, you have to allow yourself time to mourn whatever loss it is, whether it's from death or divorce, and get yourself to a place where your loss is not the center of your life. In my case, I, I was widowed young in my late 40s, um, I married my second husband when I was fifty-five, and when I first started to date, I, I tried to outrun my grief by dating too soon, and I had some very bad experiences. And I also was desperately needy. I was afraid to be alone, and so, and my friend said to me, Francine, you know, desperation is not attractive. And I said, yeah, I know, but I'm desperate. What can I do? Well, I had to figure out how to make my life okay. And for me, that was rediscovering my childhood love of bicycling and d- doing it all the time. It became a new passion. And I didn't need to be with anyone else when I was doing it. I Gave myself permission to go to the movies on a Saturday night. I love Saturday nights out. And I did it myself. I bought a ticket. I live in New York City. There were other single people there. I sat at an outdoor cafe in nice weather and talked to people at nearby tables. And I looked at the people going by. And I'm not going to tell you that that was as good as being with a great love. I was a little bit lonesome. But it was okay. And I was okay. So when I met someone, I was not desperate. And whatever your issues are, you have to figure out just how to be okay, even if what you want most is to find a partner.
0: And it's really interesting what I'm hearing you say is, is that you focused on not only getting into the best emotional shape, but even the physical shape in terms of riding your bike and doing other kinds of physical activities as well.
1: Well, that is true. And that also helped me feel more presentable. You know, despite the women on the Golden Bachelor, you do not have to look like a movie star. You do not have to have plastic surgery. And you do not have to be super thin and gorgeous to find a good partner. None of that is true. But you do have to go on dates feeling like your best self. You made an effort. You wore something you feel good in. You. You were not wearing your sweatpants. You, you know, you dressed up a little. You were the best you you could be. And that's what I advise people. And believe me, I have seen photographs of many, many new couples in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, including the ones I interviewed for Love After 50. And um, they just look like regular people. Some of them look like pretty attractive regular people. Some of them are the usual, the guy's bald and paunchy, the woman is a few pounds overweight, and they're badly in love. You know, you, it, you don't have to look like a movie star.
0: One other aspect which I liked in your book was the comment about as you prepare to seek a new relationship, how am I looking at a, the, the parent's marriage, or in some cases the divorce, uh, for clues about what you're thinking about, how how can that can be helpful?
1: Well, the parents' marriage can be helpful in some cases. Um, for example, there was a woman I called Dorothy in Love After Fifty, and it took her a very, very long time to find the man who was actually the great love of her life when she was seventy. But she looked at her parents' marriage. Her mother was very contemptuous of her father, who was an immigrant, who didn't earn a lot of money. And she made a vow that I am going to be in a marriage with somebody I admire. She married somebody she could admire. He was a writer and um, she thought she could be his muse, whatever. He was totally wrapped up in himself and had nothing to give to her. And so She said, you know, I want to be in a relationship where we are equal partners. And as she went through relationship after relationship, she had to work at it very hard, have therapy, think about it a lot. Eventually, she found this wonderful equal partnership and wonderful love, but it took a while. In terms of your own divorce, I think that is even more important. Because you have to ask yourself, what are the qualities in this relationship that didn't work? Um, Perhaps the person I was with was emotionally unavailable. Perhaps the person I was with was controlling. Perhaps I wasn't available. I didn't do the right thing. So it's really important to figure out what went wrong and then... You can make a list. You can write it down. In fact, I have some, like, exercises to do in Love After 50 to list the emotional qualities that did not work for you in the past and then to list the positive versions um, of what you want so that if you were with somebody who was pretty cold, you may list somebody affectionate and giving. Um, if you were with somebody controlling, you may list somebody who... Um, doesn't try to control me, you know, that kind of thing. And also keep your antennae up. When you meet somebody, look for those signs. You may not see it on the first date, or you might. A lot of narcissistic people, um, a lot of that shows up on a first date. Um, you know, somebody who only talks about themselves and never asks you anything about you, that, that might be a sign. Um, or it might be a sign that you're doing your usual thing. And acting like a journalist and asking question after question and never allowing the other person to ask you anything. So you might, want, if you're that kind of person, you might want to wait till the second date before you make any conclusion. But certainly, early on in the relationship, pay attention to whether those things are going to work for you. And to that point, then Francine. It sounds like as
0: you, again, anticipate this this journey, this adventure, that you can envision what a positive future looks like uh, in terms of evaluating not only your own needs, but even identifying, the, as you said, the emotional traits of your partner. It's, it's kind of a big picture as well as a small picture. Am I reading that correctly? If you
1: don't see... A positive future. Why would you date in the first place? And in fact, a lot of people go into it with some negative ideas, like nobody will want me. There are no good people out there. I'm not thin enough. Whatever it is, and those people tend to shoot themselves in the foot. You know, they they mess up the dates, or there are people who write to them and they say, "Oh no, I don't like his picture." You know, whatever it is, it, the Thinking about a positive future opens up to you the chance to actually have it. Let's turn on to
0: how to find a date. We think about when we were growing up. Obviously, we had lots of opportunities for interacting and meeting new people. But you talk a lot about online dating uh, in your book. And help us understand that a little bit more. Why is online dating a good starting point for older adults. What what should they know about picking a dating site, setting up a profile? It could be a kind of a new experience for older adults.
1: When I was widowed and in my 40s and, and I was in my 50s, I was looking for dates. I asked everybody I knew to fix me up with some eligible person. And I would say, out of asking thirty-five people, I had maybe two dates, and they weren't very good. They weren't terrible. It's just that these people weren't for me, and they just didn't know anybody who was available. So I went online. I I've mostly used Match. dot com because it's the biggest site, and and allows like great searches. Now I haven't done this for a while, but I still think Match. dot com is a great one, and there are some other great sites, but. What I discovered is there were so many available potential partners. There were like a hundred of them at a given time. And while they weren't all appealing, there were guys that maybe I stood behind in the grocery store who lived in my neighborhood, but I never would have known they were available, single, not married, looking for someone. There, There was no way to know that. But when I went online, I found here are all these people announcing they're available, and that was fabulous. And there was also a safe way to communicate with them. A lot of older people tell me text messages are a little bit too fast and furious for their comfort. If you're comfortable with it, if it works for you, fine. But I was always more comfortable with getting an email or sending an email and spending some time reading it and then deciding if, you know, how I wanted to reply, if I wanted to reply. And um, I would very much advise anybody who's doing this, and I have a lot of advice in Love After 50, I would say do not have more than like three or four emails. Some people get bogged down in a pen pal relationship. That goes on and on, and it may be that the other person will never meet them, or it may be you'll meet, and after the first two seconds you'll know this person isn't for me, even though you've had wonderful conversations. So I say cut to the chase, have three or four emails. Uh, I prefer to have a phone conversation before meeting someone. And then decide whether you want to meet for coffee in a public place, um, using your own car or transportation so you're never stuck feeling unsafe with anyone. And I have had probably, you know, 100 cups of coffee um, with various people. I think you should expect to have many, many first dates. Chemistry is a mysterious thing. The other person you be delightful, perfectly nice, decent person, but there's no chemistry. And chemistry could be anything. It could be um, there's, a, there's a warm, affectionate smile that really turns the other person on. Or this could be somebody who's really turned on by somebody who's a little bit cold and aloof, maybe even mean. hello. And you, just, you don't know. But I was so nice. I was so great on that. Yes, you were, but he doesn't like nice. You, you just, and you can't blame yourself. It has, usually that first date has nothing to do with anything being wrong with you. When you first
0: decided to use Match.com or if you were doing an, another site, what did you think about in terms of setting up your profile? What did you want to share? What did you not want to share? What's what should our listeners know about how much they want to reveal about themselves?
1: You know there's a whole literature out there about about online dating, very easy to find online or I have some in love after 50, but there's some basic steps. You get a a really good photograph that looks like you but is flattering. Mm-hmm. You write down the things that you like about yourself. Ask a good friend to read it. Uh, like, I can't think of anything nice about myself. A friend will tell you. Or there are, there, there are professional like sites that write your profiles for you. Nowadays, probably a chatbot. But in any case, I would say don't be too demanding about what you want. And I think what's really important is most sites have a list of categories to check, like what religion do you want, what educational level, income. Um, And so much of that is irrelevant when you're older. You know, when you're you're in your 20s, you're looking for somebody who will be a good parent to your children, somebody you can make your fortune with, somebody your parents will approve of. And none of that matters a damn when you are 60. You want somebody who will simply be a good friend and partner and lover for you. And it doesn't matter whether they make a certain amount of money or whether they have a professional degree. And in many cases, it doesn't matter what religion they are. That's in the chapter of Love After 50, which is ditch the automatics, move past the automatics, the, the, the boxes you would automatically check when you were younger. They don't matter. Because this is often a a factor,
0: is about safety advice uh, to provide, again, to our listeners about avoiding predators or romance scammers or somebody who basically is trying to get somebody's money or, in, in, in a sense, undesirable connections. How can you watch out for that?
1: I would say use the common sense God gave you. If you're 75 years old and you get a picture of a person who looks like a movie star who's who's 25 that's too good to be true that is that is a scam if you start corresponding with somebody especially from a foreign country who has a really s- sad luck story and will eventually ask you for money flee what you want is a perfectly reasonable person who responds to your profile like you would expect from somebody at your church group or your neighborhood group or just a regular person. Some If somebody says, I'm in love with you and hasn't ever met you, it's not true. It's just not true. Avoid too good to be true. And we'll always, always meet in public and don't have extended correspondences with people from far away, especially. I mean, that can work out. New York, California is actually some of those relationships have worked out. And nowadays, people are meeting on Zoom if they're really interested and they're far away from each other. So that's okay, too. And taking
0: that one step further, in addition to we've talked now about online dating or Zoom or or whatever, there are some... Um, opportunities for, it's called speed dating and just lunch scenarios, and there are certain dating resources. I think, in fact, AARP has a dating resource. Have you done much research on any of those other sites? Any thoughts or comments about uh, whether they're a good idea
1: to try out? I think it's worth a try. If it's not something that's ridiculously expensive, and you know friends who have done it especially. I mean, what do you have to lose? Whatever it is, as long as, as you
0: said, it's safe and you can avoid uh, getting taken advantage of. And I wanted to uh, focus in on another aspect as you begin dating. And that is, you mentioned in your book about dating as a realist. And I wanted to kind of expand on that. How might one's own negative beliefs Impact the success of finding a new relationship. You talked a little bit about feelings about oneself, but expand on that.
1: Partly, it's feelings about oneself, like I'm not attractive enough, no one will want me. A lot of people also have negative beliefs about the dating process. You know, there all the good ones are married. There's nobody out there. It's too much trouble. I shouldn't have to bother with this. There are a lot of negative attitudes. So, for example, there was one woman that called her Candace in Love After 50, and she was a very successful, beautiful, never married woman, about 50, and she decided she wanted to find someone who was up to her standards, very attractive, made a lot of money, blah, blah, blah. And she searched and she she went on online sites, she went on like upscale sites, and when she looked at the pictures of the guys, she said, he just doesn't seem attractive enough. And she just didn't meet anyone. And then she finally, she hired a dating coach, which some people need. Um, and she decided that she would not pay such a, such close attention to the photographs. She said she learned that men actually aren't that fussy about what, what photographs they put up. And very often, as she found when she started meeting people instead of just rejecting them, men were actually much more attractive in person than in their photographs. And even if they weren't the handsome movie star look, Maybe they had a great smile or a fantastic laugh or, or made her laugh. And so for months and months, she just like passed everybody by because she had this rejecting attitude and nobody was good enough. And there are other people, Judy, for example, she just felt the dating process was too much work and she, sh- she wanted to like meet people like one, two, three, cup of coffee, yes or no. And there was this one guy who was a little bit different. She talked to him on the phone, and she said he had three strikes against him. First of all, he had a terrible New York accent. Second, his kids didn't go to the fancy private schools that my kids went to. And third, he was in insurance. Boring. And not only that, but instead of meeting for coffee, he insisted on taking her out for dinner. And it just seemed like too much trouble. The night of the date came, she was about to cancel, and she said, oh, F it, I'll go. And it turned out she arrived at the table, and this very cute guy, much cuter than this picture, stood up, and he was carrying something in his hand. On her profile, she said, I'm a confirmed chocoholic, and I don't want to change. Well, in his hand, he had a box of luxury chocolates, and she was just won over, and He wasn't boring at all, and they've been together for several years now. So being realistic about who people are and not being super rejecting is one end of it. The other end of it is living in a fantasy world where you have two emails and you think this is it, and you will walk down the street imagining that you're going to marry this person. And then it's so disappointing when you meet after maybe 10 emails um, and that doesn't happen. The, the attitude to have is to be hopeful, but not to marry yourself off before you've even met the person.
0: In your book, you also talk about do's and don'ts. Are those the kinds of things that you were thinking of or do you have some additional thoughts about, when you're starting to date, what do you need to do? Because again, I suspect it's going to be a lot different dating now than it was when you were dating back in high school or college.
1: Yes. In Love After 50, I have a lot of do's and don'ts. And of course, the first one is to feel good about yourself when you go for a date. And be aware that if it doesn't work out, it's almost certainly not about you. It's about that mysterious chemistry. But also be aware that the other person may be uncomfortable or shy, and it would be really good if you have conversation starters about it could not politics, not religion, but it could be, something you read in the in the paper or the latest movie or whatever's happening in your joint neighborhood. Um just to keep things going and um also be aware to make eye contact, to smile, and to be aware that a lot of people decide within the first five minutes of a date whether they're interested. And sometimes they just stay the minimum amount of time and then they say goodbye. And that's very common. As they say, I had many, many, many first dates. And I remember a guy who was quite attractive, and I, I I couldn't tell whether I liked him, but I thought he was quite attractive. And he looked all over the room and looked everywhere but at me. Didn't make eye contact. I figured this was not a good sign. But you know what? Also, I, if at any point you are feeling like the other person is doing something you don't like is rude or abusive, or you can just stand up, throw your share of the bill down on the table, and say, you know what, gotta go, bye. Something to keep in mind. And you mentioned it a little bit, but I,
0: I'd like to hear a little uh, expanding on it that exactly that. If a promising connection, doesn't work out as you would expect it or hope for, what do you need to keep in mind in terms of your own thoughts and actions regarding this particular situation with this particular person?
1: Some people get really disappointed if somebody doesn't answer their emails after a while. There's this thing people call ghosting where somebody just disappears. That happens a lot. Be aware that everybody out there is corresponding with three or four or five other people. And it is to some extent a numbers game. And they simply may have liked you just fine so far, but somebody else has just grabbed their attention. And that's the way it goes. And you yourself should be doing the same thing. You should be corresponding. First of all, Women as well as men should be proactive. Don't wait for people to write to you. Write to as many people as might be a reasonable choice for you and keep it going as long as you're interested and they're interested and meet as soon as possible. Um, And even if you date somebody for three dates or even a couple of months and it doesn't work out, some of the same things are at play which is that they may be dating two people or three people, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with you or what's going on between you, but with somebody else, it just catches fire. And that's not a reflection on you. And if you do, a lot of people, you know, feel hurt or disappointed if that happens. But what I say is if you're over 50 and you have survived widowhood or divorce or losing a friend, You can survive this just fine. You know, a week from now or certainly a month from now, you won't give this a thought. That's the great benefit of being older and having perspective. You know what's important and, you know, you can survive it. You're strong enough. Just go back and do it again when you're ready.
0: And Francine, one thing that just occurred to me a moment ago when you were talking about If you think "Ah, this is not the right person and you throw money on the table to pay for whatever um, the dinner or what what do what should we think about or what should listeners think about in terms of paying for your half of dinner or whatever it is that you happen to be either going to dinner or to a show. Um, In the old days, women tended to perhaps assume that the guy would pay for everything, but we're not in
1: that particular situation. What are your thoughts? I I think that both people assume and should assume that they will split things. If one, person, if one person says, look, I really, really would like to treat you and you feel comfortable with that, then you can say, yes, thank you. Also, people have different amounts of money. Very often... I've heard of successful relationships where the woman has far more money than the man. And they work something out where he treats for the small things and she treats for the big things. And it works out just fine. So it's not something that needs to be a problem, but that's further down the line once people are in a relationship. But at the beginning, I say both people should assume you're going to split it. I think it gives men and women more freedom. You don't feel indebted. Well, and that's a good
0: segue into the fact that there might be a hope of trying a new relationship. So, help us know a little bit about tips to keep in mind when trying a new relationship. What what are some ways to know if yep, this is this is the right one. I you know, this might be
1: a keeper. What what should we know? I think this might be a keeper is is an easy one to answer, but what makes people older people tend to know fairly quickly if there's a relationship that does not feel right to them um A therapist said to me older people get much better at catch and release so after a couple of months um Look at what's, if there's anything that's bothering you. Um, One woman was had moved in with her boyfriend just because of rent possibilities. It was very early. And he said he was in love with her, blah, blah. But every night he would have long, intense conversations with his ex-girlfriend. And she said, look, if this is either you stop this and make your, so I know you're available, or I'm out of here. And he did stop it. So that worked for her. Somebody else was with a very successful, like, very accomplished person, but she said he had a, he seemed to have a sense of suppressed rage, and nothing was good enough for him. And she asked, she said to herself, do I want to live with that? And the answer was no so she got out. Um, And the question I think you need to ask yourself is, in this relationship, how do I feel and how do I feel about myself? Because you want to be in a relationship where the, the partnership makes you feel good about yourself. You don't want to feel critical of yourself or down or like you have to do all the work. And you know after a few months six months at the most you should know this and and either move forward in some cases it's let's get a place together in some cases it's this isn't going to work we need to just break up
0: and another aspect which obviously is an important part of establishing a relationship is having sex with the new partner and you devote a whole chapter in your book to um the sexual relationship. So what should older men and women think about and do before having sex with a new partner?
1: Um, first of all, I think people telegraph pretty soon. It depends on their age, partly, whether they're really interested in a traditional sexual relationship or whether they just want to hold hands and snuggle. Because some, some people in their 70s and their 80s, uh, Feel they're done with sex; they just want a lot of physical affection. I tend to devote a whole chapter in Love After Fifty to sex when you're older, because both men and women are dealing with physical changes, and I've got a lot of advice from really brilliant sex therapists about how to adopt a new model of what sex is. For some people, the old in and out still works fine, with or without pills. And for other people, it's finding what's erotic and pleasurable and satisfying, trying out all kinds of new things for both men and women. And one of the wonderful things about it is each person has to tell the other what they can do, what they can't do, what they need, what hurts, what feels good. And this kind of communication makes them incredibly intimate and vulnerable and often leads to some of the best sex they've ever had. I wanna tell a story about that. This couple in their in their 70s are had five dates, they're making out like crazy on her sofa and the bed is, is like a few steps away. When he stops and said, listen, I have to tell you something. I have a vascular problem and I can't have an erection, but I can give you lots of pleasure. And she said, that's great because intercourse is painful for me. And they they worked out a wonderful relationship, each doing for the other or sometimes for themselves with the other's help, whatever it was that gave them pleasure. And what I'm hearing you say is is that,
0: it's okay to change the traditional beliefs about sex and consider new ways to experience it. It's not only okay, it's absolutely
1: necessary. And it produces great results.
0: What's not to like, right? Right.
1: <laughs> another, another factor
0: which you brought up a moment ago besides the sexual relationship is living together or not living together, marriage, or not getting married. Talk more about that. What, what did you discover from your interviews, and what, what should we know of those two uh, activities?
1: This was very important in my own life and continues to be so. People in later life have a whole life that comes with them. You're not in your 20s and at, in your first job. You may have a house, you may have two houses. You may have a lot of money, you may have a little bit of money. You may have health problems, you may have long-term care insurance or not. Um, You probably have children and children with certain expectations, adult children. And so it's a very complicated arrangement and thought process. You have to negotiate first with yourself, what do I want? Some people love being in their own space and don't want anyone to live with them ever again. Uh, and they would love to have their their boyfriend, lover, girlfriend come over four nights a week and, or on the weekend and but never not live together. Each live in their own place. Other people want to live together, but they can't tangle up their financial relationships because it will affect her alimony or his um, or his inheritance plans for his kids or all kinds. There are so many financial and practical considerations when you're older, and getting married really changes things, and lawyers have got to be involved. Whether you live together or marry, you need documents to take care of every contingency Suppose he moves into her house, but she dies first. Does he have to move out? Does he have a right to live there for life? In Love After 50, I I give a lot of advice and tips and questions to ask for every one of these eventualities. And it sounds like people
0: really need to consider not only living together or, or marriage, but I wanted to bring up the whole aspect of children, uh, adult children, and uh, what that means, uh, starting from even the attitude about a new person in mom's life or dad's life, not to mention, as you said, the inheritance uh, or whatever, uh, relationships. And that. talk more about that. That's, that seems to be an important aspect that older adults need to consider as
1: they start seeking new relationships. My general advice to to parents is be sensitive to your children's needs. Do not say to them, you're 50, for God's sake, get over it. However, do not give them veto power over your having a relationship. In some cases, there there are children who are saying, mom, you really need to find someone, let me help you. I'll write an online profile for you. I know a lot, or I know kids who have fixed up their parents with their current partner, their girlfriend's father, or their friend's father, roommate's father, wife, uh, sorry, roommate's mother. And um, it's great. But be aware that if you have a close relationship, father and daughter, for example, having a new partner will change the nature of your availability and your relationship with your offspring. If you're a father, your daughter will no longer be the central person in your life. And be aware that for her, that's a loss. So listen to her feelings um, and let her know that you will spend some time alone with her. You won't always be. It won't always be the three of them. That's very important. Always spend some time being the family you used to be, at least temporarily. And you know, be sympathetic to your kids and pay attention. If 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 you're a an eighty year old guy with a twenty five year old one, and your kids say, "Dad." There's something fishy about this. Pay attention.
0: I'm also wondering too there might be situations where one person in a relationship has children and the other doesn't and um perhaps uh the person who doesn't uh, have children may want to sometimes comment about how their their partner is interacting with a child because, well, I think you ought to do this or, you know, you shouldn't be doing that.
1: Uh, Have you seen that a lot, too? I've seen it somewhat, and it's not just for people who um, don't have children. You have to be aware that the patterns you have developed with your children and your partner has developed with her children have been formed over decades They are not easy to change. So if your partner enables her son in a way that you don't think is healthy, you can carefully mention it. You can suggest maybe they go into family therapy. But I would say be very, very careful and don't expect the person to change. What you do have a right to say is what affects you. You know, when we go out together, she doesn't even talk to me. She has to be polite. You know, there there's certain you can ask for yourself, but you have to be very, very careful about treading over the boundaries between parent and child with your partner.
0: Taking that one step further in so far as the relationship of the the parent and uh, the child and also the new partner. Why is it also important to discuss some of these in advance? uh, Issues like end of life or health habits, experiences with illness and the medical system, disabilities, things that you didn't have to worry about when you were living in separate domiciles, but can also come up when you start a, a relationship. What do you suggest in terms of thinking about those various topics.
1: A lot of people, especially women, and especially women who have already been long-term caregivers for a late spouse, may feel very reluctant to be in that position again, especially when they're at an advanced stage and they don't know how many years they will have with this partner. I suggest that early on in the relationship, when it's clear that maybe it's in two months or three months, when it's clear, both people want a relationship, that you have a conversation that goes something like this. If I should need long-term care, I don't expect you to do this for me. I expect my kids to help me out and I've spoken to them about it. Or I have long-term care insurance. What are your resources for caregiving if you should need it. And then you, you have a conversation and you you work it out. Some some older people feel you won't take care of me and that might be a deal breaker, but it might be a deal breaker for you. Also, the money issue is very important and it may affect your decision about whether or not to live together. Because if you live in your own home, there's much less expectation that you will be the caregiver for your boyfriend, partner, girlfriend, whatever. But it would also be good if, however it's going to be done, um, that gets discussed right up front.
0: And I would assume that also even includes making decisions about end of life um, as far as the partner and the children.
1: Well, it does. And the question is, depending on whether you're married or not, I may decide that I don't want my partner to be my healthcare proxy. If somebody has to decide things at the end of life, if I can't, I want it to be perhaps my older daughter. It's very important to have all those documents in place and um, discuss it. I mean, it's important to discuss it with the kids and make the right decision. But it's, you know, in some cases, you, your partner may want you to be the healthcare proxy or the financial proxy. In some cases, not, but that's something that has to be decided depending on the situation. Well, we're just about out of time. And so I welcome any final thoughts that you have, Francine. I would say finding love when you're older is a wonderful, wonderful experience. And people may find that even people who have been happily married for years and were widowed may find that this relationship is very special, different, and maybe even better than any they've ever had. And I so hope people will take advantage of the help in love after 50 to find it. That's a
0: excellent way to close out this interview. And I really, really wanna thank you, Francine Russo, Journalist and again, author of the book called Love After 50 How to Find It, Enjoy It, and Keep It. And I want to thank you for joining me today. It was a pleasure to have you on the show.
1: Oh, it's been my pleasure.
0: Thanks, Cheryl. And if folks listening want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can check out our website at agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio podcasts and the tv show episodes and these podcasts are on apple and spotify and other podcasts that are out there aging matters is produced in association with steve lack audio and you can learn more about that company at steve thank you for listening to aging matters today and remember age is just a number not a label i'll be back again with you next week